Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's always good to be back. I always enjoy um, preaching here, and you all are always so nice to me, and, and Abby as well, and so we're grateful for you and your, your kindness to us. Um, I'd like to open by, before we pray, I'm going to read our sermon text, and then we will, we will pray. Our sermon text today is Matthew chapter 4, and we'll be looking at the first four verses. This is the temptation of our Lord. Matthew 4, 1 through 4 says this, When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the blessing that you have given your church, the blessing of your word, the blessing of your preached word. Father, I ask that you would guard my lips and what I say to speak only your truth. I pray that you would open up these people's hearts and ears to receive what you would have to tell them. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, because we can enjoy your word without fear. We can enjoy your preached word without condemnation, not because we are good enough to receive it, but because you have died for us and you have covered us in your righteousness. And thank you, Holy Spirit, because we could not even understand your word if you did not explain it and reveal it to our hearts. And so we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus is better than you. I feel like that's a pretty obvious statement. I'm not trying to start the sermon off with anything too controversial. Um, and yet, I feel that so many times, if we have worries or anxieties in life, I think it's pretty fair to say, to a certain degree, we have worries and anxieties because we fail to grasp, really, how much better Jesus is than us, how much greater Jesus is than us. Uh, there's, a, there's a popular phrase in Christianity, it's been around for a long time, that Christians frequently use as a moral guide to help them out in life. And that phrase is this, what would Jesus do? Um, now, I'll be honest, anytime I hear that question, what would Jesus do, I can't help but feel that the answer is something like, something better than I would. Uh, because Jesus is better than we are. He's better than you are. He's better than I am. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that I have a problem with that phrase. I think it is very helpful. But don't mistake, you can't perfectly emulate Jesus. You can't perfectly copy him. Because Jesus 
was perfect. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. But if you're a Christian, that's, you don't really have a problem with that, at least if you're thinking correctly. As a matter of fact, that's the best news possible. And in reality, the fact that Jesus is better than you, that is the gospel. Jesus lived a life of perfect holiness and righteousness. We couldn't do that. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. We couldn't do that. Jesus rose again from the dead, and now he makes intercession for us forever. We couldn't do that. So, in a word, Jesus is better than you, and Jesus is better than me. And that's a good thing. Um, We gladly rejoice in the fact that Jesus is better than we are. And the text that I've chosen for today is a text, I think, that really brings this out. Um, Really, the Christian life, in some degree, as we pursue to love Jesus more, in some sense, we're just pursuing to know how is Jesus better than us? In what ways is Jesus better than us? And I think Matthew 4, 1 through 4, really draws this out. Uh, This is the text of our Lord's temptation. So let's see how our Lord is greater than us. In order to understand the temptation of Jesus, though, in Matthew 4, 1 through 4, I think it's important to first understand two things. The first thing that's important to understand is what is the devil actually tempting Jesus to do here? I mean, yeah, he tempts Jesus to turn uh, rocks into bread. He tempts Jesus to cast himself down from the temple peak. He tempts Jesus to bow down and worship him. But I think that all three of those things are really just outworkings of a more fundamental temptation that Satan is getting at. There's something deeper that Satan wants Jesus to do. Now, in order to see what this thing is, we actually need to just back up very briefly to Matthew 3. The Bible is a book, and if you've ever read a book, typically this chapter here has uh, stuff in it because this chapter before it said something, right? I mean, that's common sense, right? Some people don't get that with the Bible, but... So, chapter 4, chapter 3 comes before it for a reason. And here's the reason. We're going to read about Jesus' baptism here. Let's look at verse, start at verse 15. Or let's look at verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So notice, God the Father is speaking to Jesus here. And what does he say to him? He says, you are my son, and with you I am well pleased. And what is the first thing Satan says to Jesus? 
chapter 4, verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made into bread. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you're picking up on something that uh, many theologians have noted before, namely that the devil is trying to tempt Jesus in the same way he tried to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. This is from uh, Genesis 3, verse 1 and 4. Look at how Satan approaches Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then after Eve responds, he says this in verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So, what is Satan doing here? He's questioning the trustworthiness of God's Word, of God's spoken Word. And when we come to Matthew 4, he's up to his same old tricks. God the Father tells Jesus in chapter 3, You are my Son. And then Satan approaches Jesus in 4 and says, If you are the Son of God, did God really say you are His Son I mean, can you really trust that God is being honest with you? So, the first thing that's important to understand about the temptation of Jesus is what Satan is actually trying to tempt him to do. Satan wants him to doubt his father. The second thing that's important to note is that the circumstances of Jesus' temptation form nearly an exact parallel with the circumstances of Israel's temptation in the wilderness after they leave Egypt. Uh, Satan tries to tempt Jesus three times, and each time Jesus responds with Scripture. But all of his Scripture comes from the same section. It all comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through Deuteronomy chapter 8. And the very first thing he quotes is a portion of Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, he says this in verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. However, if you were to go back to Deuteronomy 8, and you were to just read the first verse, verse and a half that comes before that, you're going to notice something very interesting. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. So there are a ton of parallels here, and I'll try to quickly go through them. Uh, first, Moses says in Deuteronomy 8 that Israel was led by the Lord their God into the wilderness. And Matthew 4.1 says that Jesus was led by God the Spirit into the wilderness. Second, just as Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, so too Jesus spends 40 days wandering in the wilderness. Third, 
Moses tells Israel that they weren't being led by God through the wilderness for no reason. But he says that God led them through the wilderness for 40 years in order to test them, to see what was in their heart. Again, Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led by God the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or to be tested by the devil. Fourth, God tells Israel that one of the ways that he tested them was to cause them to hunger. And we read here that Jesus in the wilderness fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, and he was hungry. And then finally, fifth and finally, Moses says that after Israel hungered, God fed them with manna, with bread from heaven. And then if you look at the end of the temptation of Jesus, this is verse 11, the, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him, which in all likelihood means that they provided him with food, literally food from heaven. So we have a clear parallel between Jesus' circumstances and the circumstances of Israel. Again, really quickly, they both spend, they're both led by God into the wilderness. They're both in the wilderness with, for some amount of time related to the number 40, 40 days and 40 years. They're both brought into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted. They're both tested through desperate hunger. And finally, they are both fed by God with food from heaven. So Matthew is clearly trying to point something out to us here. But what is the point? Why is that significant to understanding why Jesus was tested? Or is it just some really cool textual thing that we can't really explain? Well, there is a reason. And the reason is not that Matthew wants you to see this parallel so that you say, wow, Jesus is very similar to Israel. He's actually drawing it out so you will see how incredibly different he is. Uh, to put it another way, even though the circumstances of Israel's temptation and Jesus' temptation are almost exactly the same, their response is as different as the East is from the West. Now, let's finally take a second and look at how Jesus responds to Satan's temptation. Uh, we'll look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, as we already pointed out, Satan's goal is to drive a wedge between the Son and the Father. It's to make Jesus doubt the word of his Father. And so his first strategy is essentially this. Prove it. If you are the Son of God, if your Father is not a liar, prove it. And his temptation, obviously, has a little bit of extra strength. Because he's not telling him, well, prove it by just creating something cool. You know, make some supernatural light or fireworks or uh, flowers sprout out of the ground. But Jesus is a man starving. 
And Satan basically provides him with an opportunity to uh, kill two birds with one stone. He says, well, you're starving, and uh, your father says you're the son of God, so, hey, just turn these stones into bread, and you'll prove that you're the son of God, and you can eat something. Well, I, I do think we need to pause for a second and ask, um, why, why would it be wrong for Jesus to do that? I mean, he is, he is the Son of God. He can turn stones into bread. And there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with eating when you're hungry, I hope. But don't forget, Satan is not merely inviting Jesus to eat. He's not saying, hey, make bread just for the heck of it. He's saying, create bread in order to prove that you are the Son of God. Or, in other words, Satan is saying that God's spoken word can't stand on its own two feet. It has to be proven before you can believe it. God's word cannot be accepted on its own merit, according to Satan. It can't be trusted. If God makes a promise, he's got to give you some type of proof to follow it, or you just can't believe it. Now, I, I don't think I really need to point out that this strategy that Satan uses is not some strategy that he uniquely crafted for Jesus, but it's something that he's used against God's people throughout all of history. I want to quickly look again at the uh, parallel between Jesus and Israel. So Jesus received promises from God, and Israel had also received promises from God. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, God says to Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So God promised them the land of Canaan. But when the Israelites left Egypt, this is how they responded to God's promise. This is Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Israel, like Jesus, had received the promises of God. And Israel, like Jesus, was being tempted with hunger but instead of trusting the promises of God, when Israel was faced with the test of hunger, they began to question God's love towards them. They began to say, do you really love us? Because I'm looking around and yeah, you make promises, but, but there's no proof here. My life is not lining up with what you promised earlier. It looks like for all we know, you've just brought us out into the wilderness to starve us to death. Uh, growing up, I used to work with my dad a lot on the weekends. Some of you might have seen him. He's, he was not here today, but he tends to travel with me a lot. I'm thankful for my dad. Uh, but I used to work with him a lot on the weekends. 
Dad was always a handyman, just always into stuff. Um, and we would work on those Saturday morning projects. We'd get up early. I mean, you know, you might start at 6 or 7 in the morning, and um, some of you are laughing at that, like, wow, early, I know. Um, but one awful character trait I always exhibited with my dad was when I got hungry, I was done. <laughs> if we started at 6 and it was noon or 1 and we hadn't had lunch yet, I was pretty much ready to quit. And, uh, and now that as I, I get older, I kind of, I, Dad knew that, and now in retrospect, I look back on it, and I kind of see his wisdom a little bit. Uh, we had harder, when we would have a harder work day, Dad knew to buy me a nicer lunch, because if we were doing something hard and all I got was a bologna sandwich, I would struggle to stick it out with him. Um, and if you're curious, no, I never quite outgrew that sin. I still get a little irritable. <laughs> When I, uh, when I get hungry. But I have taken comfort as I've gotten older that uh, that apparently is a common struggle. Um, so much so that when I married my wife, I learned that there's a word for it. It's called being hangry. <laughs> and uh, so, again, uh, for a long time, I thought that was me, and I feel better about it. Um, well, what we're seeing essentially in Exodus 16 is Israelites get hangry. I mean, they're mad, they're hungry, and they, they just they don't understand... This, this, this anger they have towards God because of their hunger is, a causing, is causing them to abandon their faith and His promises. But that sin of Israel, it's not a sin unique to Israel. God's people, even today, continually struggle with that. I mean, think about God's promises He's spoken concerning your life. God has promised, before the, before the world began... Before the foundation of the world, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit promised that they would save you, that the Son would come and would redeem you. As a child of Abraham, you've been promised that you will eventually inherit the earth and that God will be your God and you'll be His people forever. You've been promised that all authorities in heaven and earth, all demonic forces, all kings, all presidents, they all are subject to the authority of King Jesus. You've been promised that Christ's church will be built no matter what it looks like. If Winifred has to close its doors, if Covenant has to close its doors, the doors to the church of Jesus Christ will never close because Christ builds His church. You've been promised eternal life in the presence of God, cleansed from all sin and all consequences of sin, whether those are physical consequences, emotional consequences, spiritual consequences. And the list goes on and on of what God has promised you. And yet, in spite of these promises, we frequently find ourselves racked with anxiety and worry and stress. We worry about work and we worry about family, and we worry about health, and we worry about the church, and on and on it goes. Simply put, while God has spoken His word of promise over us, we regularly behave as if His word is just not enough. I need more. I need God to give instant relief in my life to my sufferings. I need God to 
give me plenty of physical and material blessings, or I just can't trust what He has promised to me. His Word is not enough. But not only is that desire for God to prove Himself wrong because it demonstrates a lack of faith in God, but it doesn't even make sense because God has already shown you that He loves you. He's already shown you that He intends to keep His promise. God did show Israel, and He has shown us that He loves us and intends to keep His Word. God didn't just say to Israel, I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, but He proved it as loudly as He possibly could when He redeemed them from bondage in Egypt. I mean, He summoned nature against their captives, and He called forth animals against their captives, and He turned the Nile into a stream of rushing blood, and He killed the firstborn son of their king, all to redeem His people that they might enter the promised land. And what greater proof could we have that God intends to keep His promise than that He sent his only Son. And His Son died for our sins, and He was raised from the dead so that we might know the wrath of God has been satisfied, and now God the Holy Spirit, Spirit dwells in us and will remain with us. And yet somehow, even in the face of such, great, of such a great demonstration of the love of God for us, we are often like Israel in the wilderness, saying, I need proof. I need more. We are on dangerous ground if God sends His only begotten Son and we say, more. But here's some good news. Jesus is not like Israel, and Jesus is not like you, and Jesus is not like me. Jesus is better than us because Jesus trusts God perfectly. He doesn't doubt Him with one fiber of His being. This is what Jesus said when Satan tempted him. Satan said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus responds in verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When we are faced with difficult circumstances in our life, when we look around and we can't find any bread, we are prone to panic. We panic. Because we live our lives as if our lives are ultimately determined by our circumstances. We live our lives as if our circumstances are sovereign over us, as if bread is sovereign over our lives, as if our bread and whatever you're dealing with is going to determine what ultimately happens to you. But here's the thing. God is sovereign over our lives, not bread, not our circumstances. Israel received the promise of God, I will bring you into the promised land. But when they grew hungry 
And when they ran out of bread, their faith in God also ran out. They said, we're going to die outside of the promised land because they thought they lived by bread alone. They thought that their unfortunate circumstances and their lack of bread was sovereign over their lives. They said, if we don't eat, if we don't drink, we're going to die, and the promises of God, it's all going to be shown to be a lie. But when Jesus' circumstances suggested that he was going to die, and when Jesus' circumstances suggested that the Father did lie to him and that the Father didn't love him, Jesus responds like this, What happens to me is not ultimately in the hands of food. What happens to me is not ultimately in the hands of my circumstances. My life is not determined by bread alone. My life is determined by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Father has spoken, and that's all that matters. Wow. This type of faith that Jesus is demonstrating is also beautifully exemplified elsewhere. Um, it was beautifully exemplified also in the life of Abraham. I want to read this real quickly. This is Hebrews 11, uh, 17 through 19. Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, does that situation not look like the promises of God are being threatened? God says to Abraham, Through your offspring, namely Isaac, not Ishmael, this boy right here, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then God says, kill him. I mean, that's, that looks like the circumstances of his life are saying God's promises are null and void. And yet, the author of Hebrews says that Abraham offered him. He obeyed. How could he do that? This is the answer Hebrews gives. Verse 19, Abraham offered up Isaac because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham was so certain that God was going to keep his word that even if he did kill Isaac, God was going to have to raise him from the dead because God's word determined Abraham's life, not Abraham's circumstances. Abraham did not live by bread alone. Abraham did not allow the circumstances of his life to diminish his faith in the promises of God. He realized that his life and Isaac's life were determined by God's promises. And so, when the circumstances of your life suggest that God's promises couldn't possibly be true, when you are overwhelmed with anxiety and stress and worry, remember this, that whatever happens to you, where you ultimately end up, that's not dependent on your circumstances. What happens to you is dependent on the Word of God, of what God has 
promised you. But also acknowledge this. You are going to frequently fail to trust God. You are. You're going to frequently become overwhelmed by your circumstances. But that's okay. Because Jesus is better than you. Jesus is greater than you. Jesus trusted God perfectly for you. And so whenever you find yourself distressed at your own sin, at your own lack of faith, remember this. If you're in Christ, when God looks at you, He sees perfect faith because He sees you clothed in the faith of His only begotten Son. And you will receive His promises. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much that life has been determined by You. Thank You so much because You are all-powerful. So often, Father, we don't, we don't practically live like that or think like that. We say it when we're in Sunday school or we say it when we're in the church building. But then when, when circumstances of life are difficult, we practically become atheists. We, we fail to acknowledge that you're all-powerful. And even if we were to die, your promises towards us will come true, even if it means raising us from the dead. Oh, Father, we believe in you, but we pray that you help our unbelief. And we thank you that ultimately our standing before you is not because of the righteousness of our own faith, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.